Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to find out they are aiming to save our soils and they can learn a lot about leadership from failing and working with President Barack Obama. Usually I talk a little about myself, like a funny little jest here as a scientist, but how do I top working for the Obama administration? Instead, I, Ben Rush, your host, will get out of the way to get to our guest today. She has been a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and at Yale, published many articles in microbiology and advancing women in science, created projects like Tiny Earth, a science teaching tool aimed to discover new antibiotics, served as the Associate Director for Science at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy for three years during the Obama administration, is the Director of the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and authored a book called A World Without Soil that will come out on November 23rd, 2021. The link to the book in the show notes. As you can imagine, a guest of this prestige might be busy, so no improv game at the end of this episode because, I don't know, maybe she needs to talk to the UN. Actually, that was the day before we recorded this interview, so you can understand why I wanted to maximize all the wisdom coming from her guest. It makes the improv game. I've talked too much already. Just listen to this interview and you'll understand why I am so excited to bring you this conversation with Joe Handelsman. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Ben. Of course. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on here. I'm very excited to chat. Uh, like I was saying, you have such a rich and storied career. It's an honor to have you on here. And we'll start with the basics. So could you please say your name and the pronouns you use? Joe Handelsman, she, her, hers. Great. Fantastic. And if people were to bump into you on the street, what might you look like today? I would undoubtedly be wearing teal. Uh, I'm, I'm made fun of by my research group a lot for that because I'm a little bit monochromatic. Um, my hair is uh, the first thing people seem to notice because it's kind of bushy and blonde and curly um, and it has a life of its own. I can't control it. It controls me. And um, I'm short. Uh, when people meet me, they often say it's amazing how often oh, you're shorter than I thought you'd be, which always makes me laugh. Cause like, why would you think of somebody, you know, someone's height just from talking on the telephone or something? Yeah, I get that too. I'm, I'm slightly over five, seven, and I'm one of the tallest people in my family. Mm-hmm. My grandma is about five foot. And so I've gotten that surprise finding too. I sympathize. Are there any identities about yourself you'd like to highlight? The identities that I think are, um, sort of most saliently me are my role as a scientist for many, many years. Um, My role as a wife and a stepmother. And of course, within all of that and across all of life, being a woman and a short woman at that, short always has to come into it because being a woman in science has played a pretty large role in the way my career has developed. Yes, and I'm I'm very interested to get into that since you've been in science for quite some time. Um, and I always ask people too, especially when they are scientists on campus, if you're going to give your family members a two-minute research pitch of what you do, what might you say? My lab currently studies microbial communities. And the reason that that's important is that communities or mixed species, groups of bacteria uh, that live in all environments on earth, from the hot springs in Yellowstone Park to the deep thermal vents in the ocean, to the soil that we walk on, to the human gut. Those microbes are really important for the function of our ecosystem. And so we really want to understand what makes a community tick because microbes don't work on their own. To understand the community, you have to understand 
all the in interactions and how the individuals interact with each other. And so what we've developed is a very simple model system for taking my, we have a few microbes that we've taken into the lab and tamed them. And we know them very well. We know everything we think uh, we should know about them to make those sort of the perfect model. We know all their genes and we're learning all their metabolites and we uh, can grow them in many different ways. And then we've been characterizing how they interact. So two of them produce a lot of antibiotics. And one of the interests in my lab is the role of antibiotics in nature, because we use them from, uh, for infectious disease uh, treatment. But of course, the bacteria didn't do, they didn't evolve antibiotics for us. And so, and a lot of people have thought for a long time that antibiotics just kill the competition. And I think that's too simplistic a model. I think antibiotics play lots of different roles and they're rarely made in nature. Uh, in high enough quantities that they would actually <clears throat> inhibit other organisms. So uh, we think that they're often signal molecules. And so that becomes very important in communities because they're constantly sending each other these little chemical packets that are signals. It's like getting um, you know, a ping on your phone constantly. And that's probably the crux of what controls a community and, and how it functions. So right now, that's the dominant work that we're doing. We also have some other projects on the human microbiome, which is the collection of organisms we're interested in, particularly the human gut. And our interests there lie in uh, the role of the microbiome in diseases like depression and also the effect of interventions like uh, meditation on the microbiome of the gut. Hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, and I'm really curious how you became interested in microbes, and we'll get there. But I, we have to go back and ask uh, one of my favorite questions for everyone to get into the childhood. Uh, who was your first crush? Actually, it was my microscope. Um, when I was 12 years old, I was in a, a, my first science class, and it was actually very scary because I thought I was going to hate science. And I thought what I hear from my students today is I, I am not a science person. That was my feeling. I didn't phrase it that way then, but that was my feeling was, no, I'm about words and literature and things like that. What am I going to do in science? And my sisters were very good about, you know, give, bolstering me up and giving me confidence to go to class. And then I got into the class and found out science was actually uh, not that hard. And it was a lot of fun and it was really interesting. And one day we got to look under the microscope at paramecia, which are one-celled organisms that have this really charming way of feeding themselves. They sweep food into their mouths with these little hairs near, near their, the opening. And you can just see it happen in front of your eyes. And I thought that was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And so I spent um, about six months babysitting as often as I could uh, to raise enough money for a microscope. And I went to this uh, scientific supply warehouse um, and picked out uh, a lovely little microscope. At the time, of course, I knew I didn't know enough to pick it thoughtfully, but it turns out I picked a very, very interesting um, microscope because it comes from a German, a German hospital in probably was made around 1939. It was made by the Lights Microscope Company and has really beautiful optics. And so my little $72 microscope that my parents helped with a little bit of that, in addition to babysitting, became kind of my best friend during high school. Uh, I would finish my homework as fast as I could, and then I would sit down at the microscope and just spend time looking at and drawing the uh, the objects that I, I saw. And there was a little pond near where I lived, so I'd take pond water, which is one of the coolest environments for odd and strange little creatures. Uh, and, and I looked at um, soil, and I looked at uh, house plants, and whatever I could get my hands on. And that was kind of how I spent my free time as a teenager. And that really, it was a crush in the deepest sense of the word because I was just in love with the object. I loved the microscope. I still love microscopes. I still have that microscope because it's such a beautiful um, specimen of you know the early 20th century optics. So the microscope really was my first crush. 
because I love the actual object, the microscope itself, which I still have. It's beautiful to look at, and it's really an incredible uh, sample of of craftsmanship um, in the early days of making <clears throat> the modern microscope. Um, and it also was company, and that was also really important. It was like my friend, um, because no one else around me was interested in looking through a microscope, and so it just wasn't the kind of thing I could share with anyone. So I kind of thought of the microscope almost in a in an anthropomorphic way that it was almost my my friend. Um, so yeah, I, I'd call that my first crush. Yeah, it really does seem love at first sight too. I'm I'm curious like. You were saying this kind of started happening in high school, because obviously we can't see a lot of microbes without having microscopes. Did you have like that sense of like, okay, science is not going to be something for me until that very instant that you looked through a microscope? I think once I was in a science class for a couple of months, I realized that science actually is, is just a fantastic way of knowing the world. And I stopped being afraid of it. But the real turning point when I decided this is what I want to do for the rest of my life was looking under the microscope. And that's the explanation for another question I think you wanted to know the answer to of why, why microbiology. And that was the moment. And I really didn't um, stray from it for very long. I, I dabbled in plants and I still dabble in plants. But the focus of my interest um, for the last 40 years has been microbes. Yeah. And there, I, I am sensing a theme because you went to Cornell and then UW-Madison too. I'm assuming um, this was the time that you started working within soils. So transitioning from the, the pond microbes to something underneath your feet. And it's also still a very rich community. Yeah, it's actually the most diverse and species rich community on earth. And that's one of the reasons when we lose soil, we lose biodiversity, which is really important and, and awful because we're losing soil at quite a rate. Um, but I got interested in soil when I was at Cornell. Um, when I applied to college, I, I knew I wanted to be in agriculture, but you know, I, I was from a city. I didn't know anything about agriculture. So I looked at the choice of majors that you could check on your, your application. And one of them was agronomy. I had no idea what agronomy was, but the AG made me think it had something to do with agriculture. So I checked that box. And it's amazing the little tiny things that dictate where your life goes and, and how a career develops. So I was in the agronomy department, which at Cornell is both crops and soil combined into one department. And to graduate, I had to take a soil science class and I, of course, took it not thinking anything of it. It was a requirement, but I wasn't excited about it or anything. I thought the real excitement at, at that time I thought was going to be associated with the plants, with the crops and the microbes that uh, associate with them. And that was another revelatory moment. Like my seventh grade um, science class, the soil science class was just absolutely thrilling. And I didn't realize until then how diverse soils are. We all think, you know, most people think of soil as, as dirt. It's soil is soil, but it's not true. The, the geologic base of soil and how the soil is treated and the weather um, and what grows in the soil all come together to create the unique soils that we have in the world. Uh, so that was really a, a revelation. And then we actually did get to some of the microbiology of soil, not a lot, but I still remember the moment when we learned about nitrogen fixing bacteria that infect roots of plants and they form these little nodules or tumors on the roots. And inside they take nitrogen gas from the atmosphere and convert it to ammonia that the plant can use for um, nitrogen. And it's one of the most amazing relationships in the history of, um, of biology uh, because it's such an intimate relationship. The plant gets nitrogen, the bacteria uh, have a safe place to live where they're not competing with other organisms for food. So it's really a fantastic symbiosis. And I, of course, had never heard that bacteria could do these wonderful things until my soil science class. And I remember just like sitting up straight in my chair and leaning forward and thinking, that's what I want to do. And I don't know that I, I consciously remembered that. But when I got to graduate school, 
I rotated through a few labs where, you know, you spend three weeks in a lab to see if it's a good fit with your interests and people. And the first lab that I uh, rotated through was with Winston Brill, who studied nitrogen fixing bacteria that infect the roots of plants. And that's where I ended up. Amazing. I'm curious if you go to a new place, do you dig down a little bit into the soil to smell it? It's, it's one of the things that I like to do going to a new place just to see, I don't know, it's a way to connect, but also just to see the differences. Yeah, so you're you're a closet soil scientist. I love it. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful. Yes, I do. And people, of course, think I'm crazy, um, but I love seeing the soil and and in different places. It can look so different because there's so many different types of soil. But even in the same rough location, you can find differences. And I happen to live now on the edge of near the Ice Age Trail, which is where the the big glaciers stopped and the Wisconian glacier period ended about 10,000 years ago, essentially in this section of Wisconsin, and then the glacier receded. Well, the line is so sharp that on one part of my land around my house, I have this beautiful, soft, rich soil like a lot of southwestern uh, Wisconsin has. And on the other side, the east side of uh, the property, there's glacial till which is all the rubble and rocks and crap that the glaciers push forward. And then when the water recedes, the ice recedes, they leave all that junk behind. And so you would never think you were on the same continent, let alone the same acre of land to dig into this rocky, rough, tough soil. And then a few uh, yards away, uh, dig into this beautiful, soft, brown, spectacular soil that grows amazing plants. It's so hard for us to imagine the life in just the dimensions at a small scale of microbes where a water droplet could be the difference of life and death and reproduction within, you know, just like a gram of soil. Um, do you think that perspective has changed like your view on life or um, being able to just comprehend different sizes of scale at all? Well, scale has always interested me. And the one thing I didn't have as a kid, I had my microscope, but I always wanted a telescope and I didn't have one. And I think one day, maybe when I retire, I will um, get myself a telescope and start learning more about astronomy. Uh, because I think the vastness of the universe and the, the teeny weeny littleness of microbes that I study have a lot in common um, because when you study them, you're seeing the unseen. You're seeing what, what we can't just look at with the naked eye, that we have to use um, proxies for them, uh, either uh, images of reflected light, like in a microscope or a telescope, or chemical signatures of, for example, planets or of bacteria. Um, or other things that identify them and characterize them. And that to me is a fascinating thing. It's not like going into a forest and counting the number of maple trees. You can't see all of what goes on either in the universe or uh, under the microscope or under un, in the soil. And so I've, I've always liked that aspect of, of my science that it's not necessarily easily visible. Yeah, I would imagine too. Sometimes when you're looking underneath the microscope, you just see something. And you're like, "What the heck is that? <laughs> I have no idea what that is." I'm just peering into the planet, uh, a different kind of planet, really. Yeah, and of course, both the sky and the soil have so many discoveries left to be made. That even though we know a lot about astronomy, than you know more than we did hundred years ago for sure, and the same with microbiology, we still have more to learn than we've discovered already. So in your story, we kind of left like within graduate school, you're starting, you know, that's the time where people really start to become independent scientists. So I'm curious if you could kind of just describe the culture of science at that point when you're jumping in. You mentioned, you know, being a woman within science uh, was really important to one of your identities. I'm curious how that might intertwine with the time. So when I was a graduate student, there were behaviors going on that demoralized and angered me, but I never realized, of course, at the time that they were part of a systematic 
plot by society to keep women out of science. Um, you know, everything from people touching parts of your body that you didn't want them to touch people, you know, male professors felt that you know, we were just fair game, the women graduate students. Um, they, many of them didn't respect us as much as the men. But Wisconsin was such a great place for women in science compared with the other place I came from that I thought it was really pretty wonderful. Uh, and, and it is, it's spectacular. But the behaviors that were tolerated in those days were very detrimental to women's careers and undermined their confidence, made them feel like they didn't belong, made them feel like they weren't being appreciated for their science, but instead for you know their bodies or their company or their eyes or whatever the comment or gesture might be. Uh, and they weren't taken as seriously. And I remember one uh, professor saying to me, we were talking about career goals and, and he said, well, you know, when the going gets tough, the women fold. And you can imagine how it, it angered and upset me that I still remember it now, um, 42 years after <laughs> that comment. Um, and so it, I realized, I started realizing consciously more when I was a professor, less when I was a student, the barriers to women. And it was at first mostly through other people's, other women's experiences that I really began to recognize just how systemic and systematic it is, um, the behaviors that discourage women, because I just sort of plowed through and I had, I guess, enough support. My, my advisor, Winston Brill, was incredibly supportive. He didn't, he didn't differentiate between men and women. He differentiated between talented people and not talented people. And he considered me one of the talented ones. And so I got, uh, you know, a lot from him. I learned a lot. I learned how to run a lab from him. He was uh, a confidant, an advisor, a mentor. Uh, but not every woman I knew had that. And then when I became a faculty member, we were such a rare breed at that point. Women on the faculty were kind of few and far between that women graduate students and new, newer faculty would come to me and ask advice of what they should do in these horrible situations that they were facing. And so it was only just because I was the only woman around or the only woman they happened to know that, that they came to me, but I would just collect these horrible stories of what women went through in other labs or other departments. I uh, have a wonderful department. Plant pathology is very um, supportive of women. And now, in fact, it, it wasn't this wasn't true when I got there. But today it, it's about 60 or more percent women. And the last three chairs of the department have been women. Um, and they've they've launched some pretty amazing careers of women and including mine. And I'm incredibly grateful to them. Um, but not every department on campus could say that. And in fact, plant pathology was an outlier at that time. And so I thought it was my job because I had been privileged enough to have a very wonderful major professor in grad school and then be in this department where people were really supportive. Um, that I felt like I have to kind of give back to all the other women that didn't have such great treatment. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so nice to hear. And I sit on a committee on campus that is about justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. And like you're saying, it's gotten better, but the work isn't over. Uh, and I think that's something that I really admire about you since you've had such a rich career I think some people could sit back on the laurels and say, well, I'm done. But I think consistently throughout your career, you've, as, as a great leader, brought people with you. You've used your privilege to bring other people up, not only with specifically within your lab, but also projects. I'm thinking of like the tiny earth, um, where it started as a little tiny hub. And now you've got people across the world uh, learning science and also crowdsourcing science for the betterment of everyone. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I, I hope I've helped a few people over the years find themselves as scientists. Um, I see that as, as really the crux of what we do in education is help people find out what they're good at, what they love, where their passions are, and then guide them to choices that they can make to, to pursue those. Um, and, and so I've really valued the opportunity to be a professor in that role with 
an unending, interesting uh, list of people who just, every time I think my lab couldn't get any better, somebody comes along and joins the lab and it changes the whole dynamic and it becomes just a much better environment and more creative environment. And so it's it's really been my privilege to do that, but I do it in part as deliberately as I do because I think science deserves and needs the breadth of talent. And obviously some groups fall out of science uh, more frequently than others. The professor who said women more often fold, well, he happened to be right, but it wasn't the women's fault. It was the institution's fault and the professor's fault. Um, and so that is true that women and minorities have been have been shut out of science by uh, very both subtle as well as explicit behaviors. And so it's really, it's been a, a lifelong um, passion to see a more just world. And I guess the longer you live in this world, the more you see the injustice because the injustices stay in your heart and your mind forever. And so you kind of accumulate them. And that's why I think that as I've gotten older, I've wanted to spend even more time working on issues of women in science and people of color in science and, teaching science well so that it can be available to people all over the world in an exciting and, and very uh, present way. And those things are you know, not things I have to be doing for my job, but I absolutely believe they should be part of my job and they must be because we really have to build a much more diverse scientific community. Yeah, we're absolutely losing out on so much talent and innovation because the systems at bay have been historically exclusive and all those different unique perspectives would just advance us so much more. In all the projects that you're doing with building an equity and justice in science, you have your own lab. You're also the director of a really large center on uh, campus and you're running the tiny earth project. Like how, how do you balance that? Um, do you think it's like having a great team good time management or just kind of ebb and flow of projects coming into existence and fading away? Well, the bottom line is I, I never feel like I'm serving any of the things that I serve sufficiently. Um, my lab, the Institute, Tiny Earth, I'd like to spend more time on all of them, but I can't. So I have to accept that. And it's possible to get so much done because I have an amazing team. I have amazing teams I, to run the Institute. The administration is fantastic and they're dedicated and they're loyal. So we've had some people there for 10 years uh, just since the Institute formed and they, I don't think they ever really want to leave. It's wonderful. Um, my lab is, uh, I've had a lot of great people go through my lab but this group I'm just having more fun with than I've probably had in a long time. And so I think that's made, uh, made it easier to do those two parts of it, the, the administration of uh, and running of WID as well as the lab. And then Tiny Earth, I've had a long-term uh, collaborator, Sarah Miller, who has made a lot of the teaching work and education work that I do possible. And when I came back to Madison a few years ago, I desperately wanted her to run Tiny Earth, but it just wasn't the right time in her career. And so a couple of years later, uh, it turned out she did want to make that move. And everything I've done with Sarah has been a success. We started 20 years ago, we started a summer institute to train faculty to teach. That institute is going full steam ahead now, all these years later. Um, it's funded by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. It's sponsored in part by the National Academy of Sciences, and they've replicated it so that they have seven of them across the country. That's the kind of thing that I could never have done myself, but my partnership with Sarah has been astounding in terms of launching efforts like that. And so once Sarah decided she was willing to be the director of Tiny Earth, um, I knew it was going to be on, on, a, on a good course, and it has been. And I could not, absolutely could not do all three things if I had to literally do them myself. 
but Sarah runs Tiny Earth and we talk about it frequently and we write grants about it frequently, but I don't have to do the day-to-day. She does that and she has a, a staff to do that. Um, and, then, and then all the others, the same thing. Uh, I couldn't possibly run an institute without having a fantastic assistant director who knows everything uh, about the institute because she was there when they, when they first opened it, uh, to great financial people, to great IT people, fabulous communications people. And so it really is a matter of pulling together the best team you can in order to um, do more things than one person can do. Yeah. And one thing that I ask often of faculty here on the podcast is their managerial style, because it can vary. Um, And that's another skill that to be really effective as a leader, um, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of failing and also hopefully some successes in there too. And you're not always taught how to do that, um, you know, to this day in graduate school. So I'm, I'm curious your experience in learning how to manage and also how you might identify yourself as a manager and like what types of things that you do to make that really successful team. Well, I think most faculty will tell you they learn to manage uh, by making a lot of mistakes because we're really not taught. I don't know of any place that trains all their faculty or graduate students uh, to um, to be managers or leaders. And I've studied both of those and they're very different skills. Uh, managing re- applies more to making a system run and the the parts of the system that have to work together. And leading to me is is the part of vision and, and getting people excited about a common cause and a common goal. And so I think most faculty, and I was certainly an example of this, had to make a lot of mistakes. We all come in with some level of intuitive knowledge of people and the is different levels, of course, in everybody. I think I had a pretty good level of understanding people. I was very sensitive to people's moods and needs and wants, and I knew how to communicate with them. But I made every mistake in the book. I I cringe when I think back to how I I ran my lab 20 years ago or 40 years ago, 30 years ago. But I think um, I've learned by trial and error. I've learned by watching really good managers and I've watched from, I've learned from watching an amazing leader, and that was President Obama. And I spent three years in the White House uh, doing science policy for him. And I learned a lot about management and leadership from his style, which even though I was kind of watching it from a distance, I certainly wasn't, I didn't see him every day, but I saw what he did every day. And he is just an absolutely gifted manager in terms of managing people and making things run efficiently. The White House was really efficient under him, which nobody talks about because nobody really cares. They just care about the outcomes. Uh, But the people in the White House sure care uh, how it runs. And he ran it really, really well. And then his leadership was just astonishing. And I think the single biggest thing I learned from him was to combine being open and democratic and hearing all voices and trying to accommodate as many as you can, but then making decisions. And it's the making decision part that I think had paralyzed me before that, because I always thought, well, how can I make a decision? Because I'm going to act, it's going to seem like I'm not listening to all the voices that I've asked to tell me what they think. And of course, in any decision, that's, you have to do that. But what I realized working with President Obama is that it was his decisiveness He would listen to all the voices. He would call in everybody he could think of who could advise him on a topic. But then when it came to the end, he would make the decision. And people were just happy about that. Even if they were, they didn't agree with the decision. They knew that his judgment was so good and he's such a wise man that there had to be a pretty good reason for that decision and they could accept it. And so I don't I don't claim to have anything like the leadership skills of President Obama, but I can at least try to emulate him. And I, I think coming back to a leadership position after working with him was really just an, an incredible opportunity and honor because I got to use so much of what I learned in the White House in and then, you know, apply it to my current position. And I mean, it's amazing just what a little bit of listening can do. Uh, just to empower who you're working with and just feeling heard um, to just make, I mean, I know that's a, 
one thing that I really love about the lab that I'm in right now is everyone has their voices heard, even if it's sometimes questions or comments that might seem above my pay grade to firm. Like if I'm pushing to have, you know, we need another person in lab that might seem like the boss's kind of tier level of thinking, but because we have that openness and discussion, we all work extremely well together and we get tons of stuff done, even for a small lab. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up working with uh, President Obama because I was curious and thinking if I was in your situation, part of me would wonder like, why did I get selected to go work for them? And I feel like I would have a little bit of an imposter syndrome because it's such a high level to represent a lot of science because you're representing science and technology within policy. Um, did you have any of like a, an imposter syndrome in that? Maybe I'm, you know, putting words in your mouth, but I would expect at least some stress to like carry a whole field forward in, in some aspect. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. I, I asked several times uh, why I was selected because I considered there to be thousands of other scientists who had accomplished as much or way more than I had in science and also knew about some of the topics that were really critical, like STEM education and microbiology and some of the things they chose me for. So I was amazed. I thought within 24 hours, they'd figure out, figure out that they made the wrong choice. And so, but they apparently didn't. I don't know if they, how they felt at the end, but they, they still seemed to tolerate me after the first day. But I felt like an imposter in every job I've ever been in. And when I was a professor, I thought, I don't know how to do this. I mean, here I am in this big empty office, well, small empty office, I guess, you know, and all they gave you in those days was a telephone and a desk. And I had to just figure it out from there. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And I was sure that they were going to figure out that I didn't know what I was doing pretty soon. And that's exactly the imposter syndrome is, you know, the, the fear that you're not able to do the job and that everyone's going to figure that out. And then when I became a department chair, I felt like I hadn't really led anything like that before. And I thought I would be I might be terrible at it and the department would end up hating me. Um, but in the end, um, I think it went pretty well. Uh, so, you know, in each job, I've sort of said, what am I doing here? How did I get this? And I can't do this. And then it's worked out. And of course, when I got to the White House, it was like imposter syndrome in big caps with flashing lights, because I had never done policy. I had worked on some policy reports with committees, but I had never uh, worked on what I now understand to be policy. And so I didn't really know what I was going to be doing in the job. And it took some time to learn it. Um, but the, and there's also an incredible amount of freedom in positions like that, um, that you're you're not serving, it's not like working at, at an agency, you know, like Department of Energy or something like that, where you have a very prescribed job and there are things that you have to do. That Those positions were very much up to the person and shaped by the person who was in them. And so then I, that gave me even more pause because I thought, well, what if I think things are important and no one else does? But being a little bit pigheaded and um, stubborn, I, I just kind of plowed ahead and did what had to be done. And I think that was pretty successful and I'm, I'm pretty proud of some of the accomplishments. But the big moment in the imposter syndrome for me was walking into my office at the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery when I came back to Wisconsin on the first day and looking around and thinking, I was the right person for this job. I can do it. And I've thought so many times of that moment because what a privilege to have in your life that one chance to feel not like an imposter. And I, I really uh, thank President Obama for that, that he is such a reinforcing person and seemed to like my work so much and was so generous with his um, time and his commitment to issues that I brought to him and his appreciation of the work that went into those jobs that um, I think it gave me a level of confidence that I just really never had before in the pro professional arena. And, and I'll be ever grateful to him because it, I think it changed the rest of my career. Hmm. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you sharing that too, 
I, I think a lot of times, you know, as a graduate myself, or if I was an undergrad, seeing people more advanced in their career, especially with accolades and jobs that you have done, is just thinking like, well, that person knew exactly what they were doing this entire time. And we've had guests on here saying, you know, when they applied to graduate school, they were rejected, you know, they didn't get tenure, and now they're distinguished professors. And I like, I know for myself, it's really nice to hear that. Because at the end of the day, we're all human. We all have these struggles. And, um, you know, the the leaky pipeline is made up of many different things, but one of that is imposter syndrome. So I'm sure your words helped me and, you know, will definitely help the audience too. So I appreciate you sharing that. There's an interesting, talking. you were talking about rejection from colleges. When I was planning to go to college, I applied to Cornell and Yale. And I had gotten interested in Yale because there was a professor there, Arthur Galston, who was um, a plant biologist, and he said development of plants. And that was when I thought I wanted to work primarily on plants and secondarily on um, microbes. And I really wanted to be able to do undergraduate research with him because I thought his book was cool. Well, that's not really how you choose a lab, but okay, that's you know what my 17-year-old brain said. And... So I applied and I was devastated that I wasn't selected. But his co-author of the book was someone at, at Cornell, which is why I applied to Cornell, and also because of the agriculture component. And I ended up going there. And I, when I was hired at Yale as a professor, uh, at one point early on, I was cleaning my office and I asked one of the staff people, why is it so dirty in here? They're just layers of dust. And she said, oh, well, I don't think anyone's actually been in here since he died. I said, who? She said, Arthur Galston. So I had the opportunity to live in one of my heroes' uh, office for my whole time at Yale. And uh, I ended up giving a talk that his, um, they have an Arthur Galston series of talks and his children were there and I got to meet them even though he had um, passed away a couple years earlier. So yes, uh, it was traumatic and awful to be uh, rejected, but then I was, I was there in a different capacity years later and that felt like coming full circle. My original undergraduate pursuit was music composition. So I wasn't anywhere near science and I got rejected from everywhere. Um, and so just last minute was applying and applied to UW-Madison late, was rejected. And now here I am and I love it. And I had some thought I might back then in my 17-year-old brain as well. Um, but a bit of coming full circle too. Um, so I'm going to switch to a little bit of op more open-ended questions to make sure we can still get you out on time. Was there a position that you had that you were maybe most surprised about getting throughout your career? Well, I would say the White House position serving as a science advisor, because I never dreamed of going into government work or, or um, policy. I wasn't even sure what policy was when I went to be a policy advisor. Um, so I think Getting that job, because I didn't really go after it, they went after me, was the biggest shock because it was just not part of my self-image or my image of my future. That's also quite a process, too, because I, I think I was reading a little bit that you still had to be Senate confirmed. So especially with maybe not having like a lot of policy experience, like being in front of the Senate is quite a trip. Yes. Um, it wasn't the whole Senate. It was just the Science Committee of the Senate. Um, but there were some really wonderful senators um, on on that um, that panel, uh, and it was actually kind of fun. And um, that amazes me that a hearing at you know that level, where <clears throat> at least some of the members of the committee are were not particularly supportive of uh, the president, it really was quite enjoyable. And part of the reason it went as well as it did was that the OSTP staff um, had prepped me for about a month before the, the hearing. And so we went over a lot of the questions that they were likely to ask. And I read all sorts of reports. And so I really dedicated a lot of time um, with their guidance to uh, figuring out the content, but then even just as important, they taught me the format 
and you know how to address the senators and what to say, what not to say, um, what not to commit yourself to. There is a real finesse to giving a, a good hearing, and so I, I'll always be really grateful to them because it, it could have been totally traumatic, but um, it wasn't. And they also took me around to meet some of the senators before the hearing, and that, of course. You know, it's very, it really softens the tension because you've met some of these people, you know, they feel like humans. You've had, in most cases, a really good interaction with them or their staff. And some of the staff were great. They, they even asked what I wanted to be asked at the hearing. And then they would pass notes to the senators uh, with questions um, while the hearing was going on. And, and so I think that also helped a lot. Fantastic. And before I get to my final question for you, I know you're also um, either about or has come out your book on soil science, and it's about imagining the world without soils in the future. Um, and it, honestly, before like digging into your background, did not consider it, even though I've heard about historical historical events of soils just being eroded completely away. Yeah, what made you become really passionate in in writing that book? And could you tell like listeners a little bit more about it? Well, when I was in the White House, I wanted I was developing an initiative on soil because I'm committed to soil. It's been my research for decades. And I think we don't know enough about the soil because it is almost a literal black box to us. It's so opaque physically, literally and figuratively that I thought we needed a much bigger effort to understand soil. It's really almost like the, the, the last or at least the next big frontier in uh, agriculture and, and in many areas of biology um, that what the questions that are left are big ones to be asked in uh, soil because it's such a complicated environment ecologically and, and um, chemically. Uh, so I was working on this initiative and I was reading what was going on you know, in, the, in the world and I called a couple of experts and I asked, what do you think the big issues are? And I realized that I had missed that there was a, a dire need to stem the erosion of soil that it was happening at an alarming rate and really alarming, like a hundred times faster than the soil is created. It's being washed or blown away. And that our farmland was um, really under threat across the world. And I knew when I was in college that soil erosion was a big deal, but when I was in college, no-till farming had just started. And everyone kind of thought at least around Cornell, it seemed that we had kind of solved the erosion problem because of that. And there were other practices that were being encouraged to protect soil. And then there was a set of legislation that was passed in 1985 that protected soil. And I kind of wrote it off as, okay, the soil's done. Now we can move on to other things, you know, that at least in terms of protecting it and stopping erosion, now we can just focus on the basic research of what happens in the soil. What I didn't know was that that legislation was progressively gutted in subsequent farm bills so that the USDA, which uh, is responsible for soil health, just didn't have the tools anymore. They didn't have the people. They didn't have the money. They could no longer hold farmers accountable. So today, most farmers can certify their own soil safety plan which you can imagine when you self-certify, it's just, it's not gonna go as well as it does when you have to be accountable to an outside force. And so I was just shocked that I had missed this and that it had come back, erosion had come back or never really gone away um, just so enormously and the numbers were just staggering. And so I researched that a lot because I thought if I didn't know it, then probably a lot of people don't, and we may, may, maybe should make it more visible. And I began to be convinced, looking at the numbers, that it really was dire. And when you look at the weather changes that we're experiencing because of climate change, it was likely to get even more dire. And it, it has, even in the last few years, because these aggressive, violent storms that we have that are so much more frequent than they used to be uh, are very damaging to soil. They break down its structure and they often will erode it. So I started when I was in the White House working on an initiative for soil. Uh, a lot of people didn't want to hear about the erosion problem and, and it never, the initiative never went as far as I had hoped. 
But when I got out of the White House, I felt like I had unfinished business, that I owed it to soil and its its future and, and the future of people um, to bring that issue to light. And so I started writing about it. And that's when I, I had the idea for a book. And it's called A World Without Soil. And it will be published by Yale Press. They are printing it probably as we speak. And it will be uh, <clears throat> available in this country November 23rd. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking when I've looked at some climate change models, not that I'm a climatologist, um, a lot of factors that go into it is temperature, growing days, um, where precipitation might happen. But the underlying assumption is all soils will still be there. Um, and my limited capacity of knowing about agronomy and agriculture in general, it's like, okay, if you want to, if you want to grow your, your yields, it's just like more for fertilizer, maybe some water management, maybe some like crop rotations, but not too much talk about soils. And it is interesting that I think there's also a disconnect sometimes between the health of the soil and the health of the food that we eat. Maybe once or twice, I think in my career within nutrition, we've talked about how the soil health will impact the food that we're actually eating. Yeah, I think that's an ignored topic that needs more attention. And I think it's starting to get a little bit more attention, but it's still not a sort of fully blossomed field. But when you talk about the assumption that the soil would always be there, this is not theoretical or hypothetical or something that's going to happen in the distant future. There was a paper earlier this year that showed that one third of the Corn Belt, which is the richest soil in the United States and some of the richest in the, in the world, that one third of it has already lost all of its topsoil. All of it. And that means farming yields are going to go down if the soil isn't regenerated. We're not going to be able to produce the enormous quantities of food that, that the Midwest has provided to the world for a long time. So that's pretty alarming. In fact, as I was working on the book, more and more research came out showing the, the problem was worse than I thought it was. Because people, when I was in the White House and I would show some of the statistics or some of the modeling and pr projections that we had done, people would say, oh, you're exaggerating. This isn't as much of a problem as you're saying. And so I, I, I felt really um, like out on a limb when I would talk about it because so few people believed in it. And fortunately, I had uh, John Holdren was uh, my boss at, in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And he was one of the very, very early voices for um, managing climate change. And when people, even scientists, were still saying, oh, I don't know if climate change is real. I'm not convinced by the data. And of course, the public was certainly saying that he was out there fighting. And so I went to him and I asked him, I said, I'm getting this really odd reaction when I talk about the soil um, disaster that we're facing. People just dismiss it. And I showed them the data. And what did you do in the early days of climate change? And so he told me what he did. And of course, most of it was coming down to gathering more data. And eventually, voices begin to catch on. And I don't <clears throat> totally understand how social change happens like that. But more and more people start to believe in it and understand the data and its power. And then eventually, it becomes accepted. I mean, we've seen just in the last 10 years, the attitudes toward climate change have changed radically, you know, across society. Hmm. Yeah. Well, this has made me think of a, a bit more selfish question. So one of my goals with this podcast is to humanize scientists. I've even thought about turning this into some research too. My hopes is that these vulnerable conversations with scientists would turn maybe the public or people that might be turned off from science uh, more into science acceptors, believers, um, and hopefully boost the trust in science um, I'm curious in your thoughts and like what you've seen in the world that you've kind of been through this process, if you think like conversations with like this, like this would resonate more. Um, I'm in the trying to convince people's uh, arena and stages like I think this would be useful. And because there's so little information on podcasts and the media itself, um, it seems like there's going to be an uphill battle. But I'm curious, just like your thoughts on 
if it would be a worthy endeavor. Absolutely. I mean, podcasts are so broadly listened to and and I'm sure that your listening public is growing all the time that getting the word out there in one of the media that people use and podcasts are certainly one of them is so critical. You know, it used to be that we needed to get things into news on television or newspapers and in print. Those aren't the primary ways that people get their news anymore. And so I think what you're doing is a tremendous service to science as well as to society in helping people begin to uh, accept that data have to be listened to, that it, you can't just say you believe in climate change or you don't. You have to evaluate the data and say, I think the data show that there is climate change going on or I don't accept the data. I don't think it's sufficient. But believing is not what it's about. Yeah. And I, I, I think too, from like a social psychology aspect too, if you like a person, you're more likely to trust and believe in what they'll say. And trying to get scientists out a little bit behind from the ivory tower, I think is one way to do that, to show maybe we have similar values, maybe core beliefs, almost like the kind of having a beer test. So thank you for that. Um, that'll uh, <laughs> power me for the next week or two. My last question for you to make sure we can get out of time is is actually coming from Guy Raz's How I Built This, which is more like the entrepreneurial podcast. But I'm, I'm curious too how this reflects in your career. Out of everything that you've done, how much would you attribute to luck and how much would you attribute to skill and hard work? That's a great question. And I've actually been studying that question with a psychology professor here and my colleague, Julia Knepper, who has also been on your podcast. Uh, and we're looking at whether there is a bias in how people think of uh, how much somebody had to get where they were because of luck and how much because of hard work or um, talent and, and skills. And it is interesting how much it varies in the scientific community, you know, how much people think about themselves that it's like probably 80 to 90% for most people is their brilliance and just their talents. And occasionally they'll recognize um, luck. But what most people recognize as luck tends to be social opportunity. And that's, of course, an extremely biased process by race and gender. So I guess I, I think a lot of it, probably most of it is about tenacity and persistence and not being dragged down by the naysayers and the people who treat you poorly or uh, don't respect your work or don't believe in what you're doing. So I think that's a big part of it. And then talent, yes, you gotta be smart to agree to do science, but I don't believe that that's the primary function that is used in science. I think it's more about tenacity and hard work and working in, in a team successfully and being able to write I think those are really the things that define um, who are the, the best scientists. And of course, it helps to have you know a, a brilliant mind and a you know, fast ability to, to read and things like that. But um, but I think it's much more those other things. And of course, some luck, some being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and I really like your comment on on luck because I've listening to how I built this podcast. Or just thinking about, okay, is it luck or fortune? How would I define this? But your your answer is like social opportunity. Yeah, it's, you know, a, the adage is it's not what you know, it's who you know. But it just comes with so uh, many layers of history. I'm just thinking as a straight white cis man, boy, have I had a very fortunate life, you know, quote unquote. But really it's social opportunity because I've, I'm kind of built based on the way that I look and act for a career in science, which is not fair. No. But then that's why, similar to you, it's like, okay, this is part of me taking my privilege to then hopefully bring others along to make it a bit more of a just field. One in part of uh, an earlier study that a uh, uh, postdoc in my lab did, Jen Shepke, she interviewed white men about how they got where they got. 
And one of the comments has always stuck with me that this person said, I really never should have been able to get into graduate school because of my grades or whatever he had done as an undergraduate. Um, he said it was a miracle that I got in. It was just sheer luck that um, I happened to get into this professor's office and he liked me because we both had an interest in hockey and I play hockey. And it was that professor who wrote a really great letter for me. And that's why I got into graduate school. Whether the story is true or not, there was no recognition that there aren't very many black and Hispanic hockey players. Have you noticed? You know, that is a privilege. And so you were in a position to talk to this professor about something that you shared, but not everyone, a woman is less likely to have access to that because there's less hockey for women. Um, and, and certainly minorities uh, don't, don't enter the big leagues of, lock, of, of hockey. So I think that's just a very specific example, but it really illustrates how um, the opportunities that we have because of our race, our gender, um, our, our socioeconomic um, class, all of those things define what those chance opportunities are that we think of as luck. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. You left me with a lot to think of and a lot of inspiration, and I'm sure we'll do the same for everyone who's listening. So I thank you for your time on the podcast, and I hope that I will see you around, maybe post-pandemic at some point. I hope we can spend some time, and thanks for having me on your podcast. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. Golly, what can I even say about this conversation? I had a hard time not releasing this conversation immediately because I felt so many people would feel relieved to know someone like Joe has struggled with being confident in their work, failed countless times, and believes grit and collaboration triumphs over singular intelligence. Wow. Please tell your friends in grad school about this episode or others who are just kind of wondering about life, if they're going to make it. There's so much wisdom to be shared in this little gold nugget of the podcast. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please become a supporter on Patreon. A small monthly donation will help cover costs of distributing the podcast, recording software, and getting the podcast out to others. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush, marketing by Jevin Lorty, branding by Lauren Schrader, and editing by Julian Epper. Until next time, be well. Sirens done? Will they pick up? I don't know. No sirens. Science and technology policy for three years during the Obama during the Obama administration.